Well, we are, are studying the book of 1 Thessalonians. Hopefully you find yourself in uh, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. But just a little bit of review to bring us back up to where we need today. This is going to be very important for our Bible study. If we were to show us a, a, a map of the world way back when, back in New Testament times, we would see over here on the right and down at the bottom you'll see Jerusalem. Hopefully you can see that. It's in the yellow. And uh, that was pretty much the center of uh, the biblical world, you might say. And then as Christianity began, about two decades after Jesus is raised from the dead, there is a church, and it's established, if you go right up the coast from Jerusalem, outside of Israel proper, you come to this town of Antioch. Now, Antioch is the center of the the Gentile church at that time, and that will be the launching place where the Apostle Paul begins what is typically referred to as the second missionary journey. This missionary journey is going to take several several years to to uh, to go through. If we look at the the um, this map, just one more thing, you'll see that Rome is over to the left, up in the top, and then you'll see between Rome, which is in the red, and uh, Antioch, you'll see where that kind of yellowish greenish color comes down. You'll see there at the top uh, where it says Thessalonica. Let's go to the next map, and maybe we can make it a little bit more clear. You'll see. Um, there at the top, you see Philippi and you see Thessalonica. Does everybody see that pretty much? The story begins when Paul launches out. He goes to that town of Troas, which is over on the right, and he gets on a boat and he heads up to Philippi as the story begins. And it's there in Philippi that as Paul is teaching the gospel that he uh, runs against, you might say, the local leadership. And so they, they don't like what he's saying, what he's doing. And so immediately they give him what we would call a Roman beating. As a matter of fact, I've put it there on the screen, the the verse I want us to highlight from Acts. And uh, you'll recall from last week we looked at this, it says the chief magistrates, those are the leaders of the city, tore their robes off them, this is Paul and Silas, and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. This is not a whip, these are rods that they'll be beating um, the Apostle Paul with. And if you've ever heard of caning, which is practiced in other parts of the world. That's what's going on. And uh, so when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them in prison. So this is not something, you know, a couple of hits and, you know, don't do this. When the Romans would give you this type of beating, it was done in such a way to bring you to the brink of death and uh, then back it off just a little bit. The idea was that we're going to do this one time with you and uh, it's going to be so bad, we will never, ever, ever, ever have to go over this again because that's how bad it's going to be. So um, Paul's thrown into prison that night, and it's, he would be, um, his back would be open, he would be bleeding, there would be chunks of flesh hanging off, and it's, it's, it's unbelievable how, how bad this is. But that night, the jailer becomes a believer, and you'll recall from last week we saw this verse, it says the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Now the reason that's important is that lets you know that these aren't bruises. If there was just a couple of bruises, you, you, know, you don't need to wash that. But these are open wounds, they're bleeding, they're scabbing, they're, and, and so these need to be dressed. So that's what they're doing just to let you know the severity of it all. This type of beating would be disfiguring. So Paul would go on from this point on for the rest of his life. He would be permanently disfigured by this beating, which is why the Apostle Paul at other times would write things like there on the screen in Galatians. He says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I was beaten in the same way that Jesus was beaten. Jesus was marred beyond any other man. I was disfigured just like Jesus was disfigured. So here's Paul, and he's in this, 
in this, uh, he's been beaten in this, um, scabbing over, and uh, the next morning they let him out, and they, they decide to get him completely out of town as fast as they can. Let's go back to the map, and uh, we see that that took place, that beating takes place at the top where it says Philippi, and so Paul leaves there, and he comes down to this town called Thessalonica, and we talked about that last week. He shows up at this town. This is a two-day journey, so it's about two days later. Paul shows up at this town, Thessalonica. He can barely walk. He's, he's scabbing over. He's probably still bleeding. He's in excruciating pain from this, from this beating. And as he comes to Thessalonica, we looked at it last week, he immediately goes into the local synagogue, and he begins to share what he knows. But you've got to keep in mind the picture of him showing up. He can barely walk because of the beating that he took. He's scabbing over over. And so when he walks in, that's what they see. They see a man who's just taken a Roman beating, scabbing over, bleeding, and excruciating pain. Now, uh, in this, he will only be there in this town for three weeks. In that three weeks, he teaches them the gospel. A church is established. Now, the church will be established for the most part by Gentiles. As a matter of fact, we saw this, this verse from last week, and it says this. It says, Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. So Paul's ministry is basically to Gentiles, not, not to the, the Jewish people. Peter's ministry was more to Jewish people than, than the Gentiles. So Paul, everywhere he goes, the Gentiles seem to respond, and that takes place there. So after about three weeks of being there in this town of Thessalonica, he's healing in this time. And even at the end of the three weeks, he's not going to be completely healed. You you don't heal from that type of beating in, in just three weeks. When we read the story last week, we saw that after three weeks, what takes place is once again, um, uh, a riot ensues and uh, they, they, they can't find Paul, but they grab somebody else. The local believers realize that Paul hasn't healed from the last beating that he took just three weeks ago. He's still scabbed, scabbed over at this point, and he's still probably moving very slowly. And so they get him out of town in the middle of the night and, and have him go to the next place, which is Berea. Let's go back to the, the map in Berea, and, uh, which is just a little bit further down from Thessalonica. And uh, he's there for a little while. He leaves his two traveling partners, Silas and Timothy. And then he heads all the way down to that town of Athens. We see that down at the bottom. And then uh, he comes over to the town of Corinth, to the town of Corinth. Now, it's in that town of Corinth as he leaves his traveling partners all the way up there in Berea and the area of Thessalonica and just up there in Macedonia. They're ministering to the church as Paul is down in Corinth. And so he's there for a couple of months before his traveling partners get to him. Now, when Silas and Timothy, who are his traveling partners, make it down to Corinth several months later, they give him the update as to what's going on in all the churches that are up in the, in the top there. And most Bible scholars agree that after two or three days after getting the update, Paul begins to dictate this letter back to the church in Thessalonica which is going to be important. I want you to go ahead and write this down, that Paul will write this letter, will write to the Thessalonians this letter a few days after Silas and Timothy arrive at, and this church is less than six months old. You need to know that. So there's Paul. He's in this town of Corinth. Uh, Timothy and Silas show up. They give an update, and he begins to write this letter back to them. 
We're going to go through this letter. Today we're going to look at chapter 1, and I'm going to do this a little bit differently than we typically do this. I'm going to read through the chapter, then we're going to walk through it, and we're going to unpack some things. It's one of those chapters that gets going as you go, but I'm going to read through it first, okay? That's what you say, okay, like you mean it. Okay, all right, let's, let's uh, read through it. It says, verse 1, Paul writes back to this, this is a few days after his traveling companions arrive in Corinth, back to the church that's less than six months old. And he writes back and he says, Paul and Silvanus, most of your Bibles will say Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us, and of the Lord, and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the Lord, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So that we have we have need to say nothing. We have no need to say anything. For they themselves report to us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So that's the first chapter. And anytime you teach what Paul is saying, the big challenge in the teaching and putting it together is to always ask yourself, what do you leave in and what do you leave out? Because there's a whole lot more than what we could talk about on any given Sunday, especially if we want to get through the entire chapter. I'm going to highlight some things that we might miss in just a casual reading, just to bring out a little bit of flavor as to what's going on. Okay? Okay. okay. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's jump back in. And in verse 1, he says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, as he opens this up, and the interesting thing about Paul is he always includes the people in his traveling party. It's, it's us who are writing to you. It's not just me here. So he says, we were there, and so we are writing to the church of, Thessala, of, of the Thessalon- Thessalonians in God. I want you to underline the word, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you, and peace. Grace to you and peace is Paul's standard opening pretty much to all the churches. But he tells them something. He says, I want you to know that you are in God. You as a church are in God. In, in our family, as you know, uh, when the twins arrive here in September, we will have 12 children in our family. They're in our family positionally. It really doesn't mean anything spatially. They're, they're in our family because they're part of our family. If one of our children goes and lives overseas for a while, they're still in our family. That doesn't change, even though they might be spatially somewhere else. Paul is just telling them, you are in God. That's never going to change. That's going to be important for our study, for our study today. But then also, um, you, you notice that he says, you are in God in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. 
There, there's something here that we read this and we kind of skip over. When you really think about it, you see it. But in the original language, when he says you are in God, he says you are in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The wording there grammatically is he's just placed Jesus Christ on the same level as God the Father, which you can only do if Jesus is in fact who? God. So, so Paul does that. And you'll see these subtle things as you travel through. So then verse 2, he begins to, to just share with them. Again, he hasn't seen them in uh, about five months. He was only there for three weeks. He says, now we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. We're, we're praying for you as a church. That's going to be important for our study. And we're also thanking God for you because something happened. Something happened that causes us to thank God for you as a church. So we give thanks to God always for all of you, verse 2, making mention of you in our prayers. And, and as we're praying for you, there's a few things that we notice about you. There's a few things that really stand out. And as we look at these, we're going to look at these as Paul begins to talk to them as evidences of their salvation. Now, here's why. When, you, you probably don't deal with this at all, but it's my own particular dysfunction. But sometimes when I'm going through a, tip, um, a difficult time, deep down inside, theologically I know it's not true, but deep down inside I feel like God's mad at me or um, I've done something wrong, or, you know, because if, if I was right with God, I wouldn't be facing these challenges. Am I the only one that ever feels that way? I know it's not true theologically. You know, I know what the Bible says, but deep down inside, I have that feeling. I'm the only one, right? It's, it's, you're going, yeah, Dan, you're the only guy who's ever felt that way. In your, so do you feel that way? Don't, don't leave me hanging up here. This, this would be very awkward if I'm the only guy that's ever felt this way. This church we're going to find is going through a very difficult time. And so Paul is going to write this church, and he's going to say, here's how you know that you are really in him. And and here's some evidences that something significant took place. You were really converted. You were really changed. You were really saved those six months ago. So here's what he highlights. Verse 3, he says, constantly bearing in mind. This is what comes to our mind when we think of you. First of all, your work of faith. Now, underline that. And labor of love. That'll be important. And steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. So, so you, you notice a couple of things. First of all, he says, work of faith, steadfastness of hope, labor of love. Faith, hope, and Love. You see that. You'll see that in all. Uh, Paul, Paul likes to say that. So that's something that you, that you see. Paul is reassuring this church, giving them some evidences that they are really saved, that something took place all those, all those months ago. The first thing that he points out is the work of faith. Now, when he says the work of faith, you write this down and, and we'll unpack it. He notices that they have some new priorities. Write that down. Something happened. The word work there is the word ergon in the original language. I'm not going to talk about it now, but I will talk about it in a few moments. But he, he says, you know, your, your work of faith. The Bible teaches that we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. But the truth is, when you're born again, when you're saved, things change. 
And when things change, all of a sudden, there's this desire supernaturally, not from you, but because you've been born again, now all of a sudden, you want to participate in the things that God is doing. So he notices in them, and he highlights, you have this work of faith. It wasn't there before, but now you really want to work. You, you, want, to, you want to serve the Lord in a, in a very significant way. So he says, you know, when, when you changed, when you were saved, everything changed. Everything changed for you. Same with us. So tuck that away, the, the work of faith. But then he says, the next thing that he says, your labor of love. Now, I want you to write this down, and, and we'll talk about it. This is where, for me, it gets very interesting in this, in this chapter. He, he's pointing out that all of a sudden they have a new motivation, a new motivation. Write that down. Labor of love. And I, I've put that phrase there on your outline. And that phrase, very interesting, when it says labor of love, we see the word love there is just the word agape. Now, we've all heard of the word agape, haven't we? And we typically, we, we think about that word agape, we think about love, but somehow as it relates to God, as it, as it relates to a relationship, his love for us, our love for him, and we talk about the agape love. So we, we've all heard of that. What's interesting in that phrase is that you notice when he said the work of faith, here he says the labor of love. In our language, when we think of work and we think of labor, they're typically the same thing. You know, if you're working, you're laboring. If you're laboring, you're working. So far, so good? But in our Bibles, it translates differently into two different English words, and that's to draw our attention that they're two very different words in the original language. When it talks about the work of faith, you're actively participating in, in, in your, you know, what God's doing, so that's good. But here, when he talks about labor of love, this labor of your, this agape love, love for God, the word labor there is very interesting. As a matter of fact, I've, I've, trans, I've put it there from three different dictionaries, Greek dictionaries. The first one is from Strong's, and it says the word kapos there in the original language means to toil as reducing the strength by implication pain. So you're, you're working to the point where you're losing, you're reducing your strength. Okay, then there's Thayer's. Thayer's points to this word and it says, um, working in the sense that you're voluntarily assumes and endures troubles, uh, trouble and pains for the salvation of others. So this is a very significant, uh, this is a very significant laboring and it, it's for the, the salvation of others. Now, Vine's expository dictionary says it like this. This word means toil resulting in weariness. So the idea is that, that they are laboring to the point where they are losing their strength. Here's what Paul's saying. When you became a believer, what we noticed about you is that something changed. There was a new motivation, and we noticed that that change brought about in you this desire to literally labor to the point of exhaustion because of your agape love. You love Jesus so much and it was evident because all of a sudden you were willing to labor for God to the point of exhaustion. So far, so good? The idea is something happened spiritually that would be unexplainable, and there's this new motivation inside of this people. It, it, it's a sobering question for each of us, for me. It's a sobering question to ask ourselves, do I love Jesus enough um, that I find myself laboring to the point of exhaustion 
out of my love for him. Out of my love for him. Now, the, there's a reason why I find that interesting. Uh, first of all, that's not to make anybody, you know, convict, but it's, it's an evaluation question that I need to ask myself. This church, when they receive Jesus, one of the things that Paul notices is that there is this desire to work for the Lord to the point of exhaustion. They didn't have that before. Something happened spiritually and their motivation changed. In the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, the first three chapters, if you've been through our study in that book, there, chapter one is sort of the introduction, and then chapters two and three describe church history for 2,000 years. And, and so it goes through the various times in church history. And then you come to the end of chapter 3, and it describes the church that's in existence just before Jesus comes back for his people, just before Jesus comes back for the church. And we've all heard this, but, but to that church, it's very different. It's a very different picture than what you see in the Thessalonian church. Something had happened in them. They, it causes them to say, we, we love God so much, we work to exhaustion. This last church, the very last church in church history, Jesus has to say this, and I put it there in your outline, speaking to this church. He says, you, you are, are neither cold nor hot. I, I wish you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will speak spit you out of my mouth. Now, that's an interesting word, spit. We won't go into it. The Greek word is emeo. The idea, it's, it's a Greek word that sounds like what it does. Emeo. Get the picture? And that's, that's literally what it is. It's a word to describe. And uh, if you have little kids, it's more of a spewing, you know? And uh, you know how you have kids and they can never make it to the toilet? Two inches? Two more inches. You'd be right there. But, you know, and it's, it's, it's the spewing. Am I the only one who's ever observed this? You've seen this. So when Jesus describes this, he says, you, you're so lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. Literally, when, when I look at you, there's just, I, I'm going to literally vomit you out of, out of my mouth, he says. Because you say, because you say, he goes on verse 17, I'm rich. I become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And he says, you, don't, you do not even know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. See, that church that he writes to, the last church, are so complacent in their walk, but they think everything's okay. They're so complacent that they can't even recognize how blind they are. And, and literally, if you tell somebody this, um, who's in that, the blindness is so great, they can't see it. They can't see it. And they think everything is okay. The Thessalonian church is characterized by this love for God that causes them to want to labor for him to the point of exhaustion. The last day's church is characterized by a sense of complacency, just complacency about the faith. Interesting? So then he goes on, he says, so we, we saw your work of faith. You know, it, you, when you're a believer, you're not saved by works, but if you believe, it's going to do something inside of you. You're going to want to be participating in the things of God. We saw your labor of love. You were serving him to the point of exhaustion, but then we also observed your steadfastness of hope. Now, in my Bible, it says steadfastness. Some of your Bibles will say the word endurance. How many of your Bibles say endurance there? Okay. And then some of your Bibles will say patience. Patience. Go ahead. How many Bibles say patience? Okay. Uh, it's an interesting word. Steadfastness, endurance, patience, however your Bible translates it. The word there, and I don't want to do a big Greek study, but I think this is important. The word there in the original language is hupomone, which just means, from Strong's, it just means a cheerful 
or hopeful endurance, uh, a constancy. The, the idea is that you're going through a very difficult time, but there's this joy. You have this joy in the midst of this very difficult time. And so I want you to write this down. We noticed your joyful endurance, joyful endurance. Now, now what are they, they enduring? I want you to go down to verse 6 real quick. We'll actually come back to it in a few moments. But he says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. Underline that. Much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This church that Paul is writing to is going through a very difficult time. They're going through persecutions. They would be losing their house. Their family members would be disowning them. They would be losing their jobs because of their commitment to Christ. They would be experiencing the same treatment that the Apostle Paul had experienced. But in the midst of that, it's characterized by, even though they're going through a difficult time, they have this unexplainable joy. And, and Paul, Paul talks about that. And he says, you know, this, when we think of you, this is what we remember because this is an evidence that you were really born again. Because nobody would do this unless God did something in their heart, which is very different than what Jesus described. Remember the time that Jesus was preaching, he said this in Mark chapter four. He says, but since they have no root, there in your outline, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Jesus says the, the evidence that they were never really born again, the evidence that they were never really saved is that anytime there's difficulty, they're gone. Very different than the Thessalonian church, Paul says the evidence that you're saved is that in the midst of difficulty, you have steadfastness and you have this joy that nobody can explain. One is evidence that you're really not saved. The other is evidence that you really are saved. You ever walked with God through some very difficult times? You don't do that unless God's really done something in your heart. And it's the evidence that something really happened. Now, verse 4, I'm going to divert a little bit. By the way, was that interesting at all? Okay, okay. Verse 4. Knowing brethren, beloved by God. Guys, you are loved by God. His choice of you. Now, underline his choice of you. His choice of you. Paul to this church teaches what is typically referred to by theologians as the doctrine of election, which means that Paul says his choice of you. God chose you. It's not so much that you chose God, but God chose you, which is, um, which is a great thing that this church needs to be reminded of. Anytime we come to a verse like this, I always feel like I got to give a little bit of explanation on this, because if, you are, if you're around in the church world, you're going to hear some of this, so just so that you know. But there are two camps in the church world. One camp is called Calvinism, and it's on one side. And then there's this other camp in the church world, and it's called Arminianism. And Arminism. And uh, they're, they're very, very different in how they relate to God. Both Christians, both love the Lord, but very, very different perspectives. Calvinism, on one hand, I put this on your outline, um, God has, they hold that God has already predestined those who will be saved. How many of you ever heard of the word predestination? Okay. So Calvinism holds that, that you've already been predestined uh, to be saved or, or not to be saved. And it's typically referred to as irresistible grace. If you've been predestined for salvation, you're going to be saved. There's nothing you can do to fight it. So just give up and you know, get saved, that sort of thing, because you're going to be saved. It's been predestined. You can't fight it. It's irresistible. Now, 
in that if God hasn't predestined you to be saved, then you're not going to be saved. That, that's uh, hyper-Calvinism. Because in the Calvinistic mind, salvation has a lot more to do, has exclusively to do with God's choice, not your choice. You're just saying yes because he's already chose you. And in that, you, you'll find that when you go to a Calvinist church, that there, there won't be a great deal of emphasis on things like altar calls. There's not going to be that impassioned, you need to come forward because there's a rest. God already knows. It's chosen. You're going to be a believer because you've been predestined. So far, so good. And, and you'll, you know, if you come from a Presbyterian background or um, you, you've heard of, um, um, you've gone to a church and they say we are reformed in our theology, that's, that's the same thing. It's predestination. Um, there are certain publishing houses that, that uh, you would know as a believer if you've been around the church block for a while, like Zondervan Publishing is very much in the Calvinist camp, and uh, they believe in predestination. So most of their publications will have a very strong bent towards that. There are some great, great, great men of God and thinkers who hold to that. One would be John Piper. Many of you have read his books, R.C. Sproul. Um, if you've listened on the radio to Mark Driscoll, you, you've, you've heard that. That's that camp. On the other side, you have another camp, and that's called Arminianism. Arminism, I always mispronounce it. Um, and they, they hold that man has to choose to be saved. Go ahead and write that down. They have to choose. You've got to choose. So if you come from a Wesleyan church background, Church of God Anderson, Church of God Cleveland, Tennessee, um, uh, Methodist church, um, uh, Southern Baptist church, you would be more of the Arminius side. If you've ever been driving in the country and you see a church called such and such free will Baptist church, you ever seen something like that? That would be, well, you've got a free will and they, they want to let you know that you have that free will. And so when you go to a church like that, because it really has a lot to do with your choice, there's going to be more of an impassioned altar call. You need to come forward. Now, I was raised a Baptist, and so we were more on that side. So you had, you know, that impassioned call. And we'd have the evangelists come in from time to time. We'd have revivals. How many of you grew up with revivals? And, and in my background, the, the um, evangelists would always come in. They'd always tell the same stories. You wonder how they all had the same stories. And the story would go something like this. I was preaching last week in a church just like this. And there in the front row, there was a couple. I knew they weren't saved, but I knew the Lord was doing something, but they would not walk forward. They resisted. They held, you know, on and on. And then that night, I heard the news later on as they were driving home. Their car, stuck on a train track, hit by a train. I don't know where they are in eternity, but that doesn't have to be you. You can come forward. Now, am I the only one who's ever heard this story? And it was like all the evangelists, you know. Now, it didn't make me want to get saved, but it did make me avoid train tracks. So, so just let you know that. So, you know, you, you have that impassioned altar call. So, and there's some verses. There's some good verses. Uh, notice there in your outline, Peter says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Um, as some understand slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so you get a verse like that. It appears that God's really chosen everyone, but he's waiting, giving you the opportunity that you could blow if, 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 you, don't, if you don't accept. Then you have in Romans, Paul talking, the same Paul who says here, God's choice of you turns around and says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? There in your outline. And how will they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? The idea is we've got to get out there. We've got to do something so they can hear. Because if they don't hear, how are they going to believe? And so you, you have those two camps. 
And what you find is if you go too far in one camp, you, you've got to kind of like cancel out certain verses in your Bible. And if you go too far in this camp, you've got to cancel out certain verses because you can, you can find it both ways. So what's a Calvary perspective? Anybody want to know? Okay, write this down. Our perspective is simply this. We believe that there's a mystery between God's sovereignty, that's his choice, and our choice. Somewhere in there, there's a mystery that God has chosen, but we have to choose too. God's not willing that anyone perish, and so we, he's patient. So, He does. You make the choice. Yeah. And then the Bible says don't resist the Holy Spirit. So he puts the desire, but some people resist. This is the first question I've ever taken from the pulpit in 15 years. <laughs> so stick around another 15 years. You never know. Okay. So, so yes, he puts that desire in your heart, but some people resist. And, you've, and if you've ever sat down and shared the gospel and they're like, hold on, I'm not going to, you know, and so you, you see that. So the desire's there and there's that, that battle. All right, but this church and what they were going through, they needed to be reminded that God chose them. And that's why they're walking with it, because God chose them. He extended that. He loved them, and he brought them. Verses 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know, what kind of men we prove to be among you, and I want you to underline for your sake. You also became imitators, underline imitators of us, underline us and of the Lord, underline that, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, you know, we, we didn't come to you with just words. You know, when we showed up there six months ago, we showed up with scabs. We were beat up. We were still bleeding. It was two days. We could barely walk. We were hunched over. We're permanently disfigured from that. And so when we showed up, it had to be God and his spirit because when you looked at us, it wasn't this message and it wasn't our presentation that you said, wow, look at all the great things, how God is blessing your life. We want some of that. It had to be God's power and God's power when you look at these men showing up and remember they're scabbing over and they're having a hard time walking because of the pain and maybe they're, they're having some assistance as they walk. And, 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 and he says, and the result of that power was conviction. And that had to come from the Holy Spirit. It wasn't our marketing strategy it wasn't our slick production. It wasn't our laser light show. And it wasn't of all the, the blessings that God was heaping on our life. It, it had to be the Lord because who would have received this message with these messengers? But then in verse 5, he says something very significant. It's the very last line. And in verse 5, he says, who we proved to be among you. And then he says, for your sake, for your sake. I don't know that it made a lot of sense to the Apostle Paul when he took that beating and God says, okay, go on to the next place. And he shows up in Thessalonica two days after that beating and he shows up and he's scabbed over and he knows he's doing what the Lord's called him to do and he can barely walk. But now he goes, 
That was for your sake. That was for your sake. Because if we would have showed up and we didn't have that beating and we did have all the slick production, then when difficulty would have come, you would have thought that you missed it. But for your sake, we showed up beaten up that bad so that when, it, when the persecution came, you simply, verse 6, you also became, what's that word? Imitators. In my Bible, it says imitators of us. When it showed up on your doorstep, you didn't run away. You just imitated us. And you went through it. You, you took that beating just like we did. Then it goes on. He says, us and of the Lord. You see that? Do you agree in the crucifixion description that Jesus took quite a beating? You just became imitators of us and imitators of Jesus when it showed up on your doorstep. You didn't run from God. And he says, in verse 6, he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus, of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. Now, I want you to remember that the Apostle Paul was literally removed from the city in the middle of the night because tribulation was beginning. The, the word there, tribulation, in the original language, I put it there in your outline, you received it in much tribulation, which meant that, Paul, we were able to get you out. But then we had to face it. And it really came down on us. And we received it in much tribulation. That word tribulation in the original language is the word philipsis, which means a pressing together as of grapes, squeezing or pinching. The, the idea is that when you were, you were to make wine 2,000 years ago, the, the process of smashing the grape was called philipsis, just the smashing. So Paul says, I showed up. It was really for your benefit because when we left, you followed our example, becoming imitators of us as you in much crushing, smashing went through. We got out, but you were left to stay and you took it. Now, the the reason that's so interesting is is, um, when we read this chapter, it's hard for us to to really wrap our minds around it because we we don't live in that type of persecution. But that type of persecution where people lose their homes, their jobs, their family, they take those beatings, happens all around the world on a regular basis. It's just that we don't see it here in America. This past week from the Assyrian International News Agency says jihadists seize Christian village in Syria and expel its residents. Um, May 12th, armed jihadists seize control of Kostel Alberg, if I'm pronouncing that right, a village on Thursday, May 10th, and ordered its 10 Christian families to leave, according to a report published by UPI on its Arabic language website. A resident of the village who did not wish to be identified said armed jihadist group came to the village and ordered us to leave our homes empty-handed. Can't go back in and get your stuff. The group, the armed group, he further stated, have exercised their control over all the houses and occupied the church and made it as their command control center. It happens all around the world where people are experiencing that same type of smashing, crushing. Paul says to this church 
the evidence that you're a believer is that when this showed up, you didn't walk away. You didn't walk away. You took it and said, I'll just be an imitator of Paul and of Christ. Make sense? It's the evidence that something took place. If you're not a believer, you'll never take that type of tribulation for him. Non-believers are revealed because when there's trouble, they bail. Believers are revealed because when there's trouble, something inside of them won't allow them to walk away from their relationship with Jesus. It reveals. It reveals. So write this down. They were willing to suffer for Christ. Verse 7. He says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. These aren't towns. These are regions. These are regions. And the evidence of their salvation, I want you to write this down, is they became examples to follow. Six months as a church, and and they've already become the example of, of what it means to be a believer to everybody else. And the whole region knows about it, the whole area. Verse eight, he says, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. You're going through this tribulation, but you're just sharing. Sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Would you say they got it? You bet, you bet. So that we have no need to say anything. But what do we add to that? You guys are going through tribulation and you're just sharing your faith everywhere you go. And we notice something about them as an evidence of their salvation, that something really happened. And I want you to write this down. They were eager to share what they knew. They were eager to share it. The church is only six months old, and everywhere they go in tribulation, they're just, they're just sharing it. They, they just can't stop sharing it. It's just the evidence that something took place. Verse 9, he says, for, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. When we run into these people, they begin to tell the story about how we showed up there at Thessalonica. How They tell us how we were bruised, how we were had open wounds and scabbing over and all that was going on. They tell us. So they themselves report to us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They, they turn from idols. It means that they're predominantly pagan. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now we talked about this last week. So we're just going to close with this. But Paul also talks about three more evidences of their conversion. Again, from last week, we noticed that they turned to God from. In their case, they turned to God from pagan idols. There's a turning to, but there's a turning from. When you come to Jesus and you invite him in, you turn to him, you are at the same time turning away from whatever it is you were following before. It's just the the very supernatural thing that takes place. Not something that you conjure up, just the desire is there. And then he says in verse 9, he says, For they themselves report to us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. In their conversion, something happened inside of them that now they found themselves serving... Uh, say it like this, to actively serve a living God. When they became born again, it wasn't that Paul was there teaching, guys, you got to serve God. You need to get 
pumped up for Jesus. You need, none of that, none of that. It was just simply the result of a conversion taking place. It, it was not charging the people up. The result of being a believer is a desire to actively serve the living and true God. That's important. Tuck that away. And then you notice verse 10, he says, and, this is the third thing, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. There's that looking forward, looking ahead to what we would call the blessed hope. Jesus is coming back for us. He he really meant it. Paul says to this church, you're really going through it. And these are the evidences that something really took place, took place in your lives and your hearts six months ago. And they reveal that you really were converted. We, we didn't teach you to do all this stuff. It's just something that the Spirit of God did inside of you. And now you're doing this. You're, you're serving to the point of exhaustion. Your, your work of faith, your, your labor of love, it's just there. You're enduring in difficult times that steadfastness of hope. It's the result of being born again. So far, so good? In my life, I, I try to live in a place of constant evaluation. I, I always want to be here, who I am at home. I don't, I don't want there to be two different people. And um, I'm as boring at home as I am here. So... <laughs> I want, I, want, I want there to be that congruence, that congruency. I want to love Jesus in front of my children as much as I love Jesus in front of you. And I'm constantly evaluating. I live in the tension of knowing that I'm not always who I need to be. I'm probably alone in this, but, but I live with that. But there's this extra responsibility on top of me, maybe from my background, growing up in some very, very weird church experiences, some very good, some very weird, that there, there's the sense of responsibility that I have to make sure that I always tell you the truth because I would hate to know that we got there and we missed it. We missed it. And we were so close, but we missed it. Or there are gaping holes in our Christian walk because we just didn't want to talk about that because it might be uncomfortable. And in my life, God calls me to evaluate myself. And I've learned that the evaluation of my life, the only evaluation I can truly trust is right here. This says this, and and this is who I am. I am either who this is saying I'm supposed to be, or this is saying something and I'm over here. And if this isn't lining up with this, then something needs to make an adjustment. Wouldn't you agree? In my life, most of the time, all the time, it's me that has to make the adjustment. This isn't changing. Paul lays out, this is the picture of what it means to be truly converted, truly born again, truly saved. It's not that you hype it up. 
It's not that we say, you need to follow. It's just the result. You were born again. This is inside of you. Can't, can't shake it. Can't run away from it. Can't walk away. And Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And he said this. I put it on your outline at the very end. To believers. But he said, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test. God's word is always the test. This is the picture of what it means to be a believer. Today, we've seen the picture of what true conversion looks like. Not to doubt our salvation, but it's good sometimes to check in and say, is my faith, is my walk the same as this? And if it's not, we can't go further in our walk with the Lord until there's an adjustment. Can't go further. It's either this picture or it's not a picture. This is the picture of being a believer or it's not a believer. And as we close today, and we're just going to pray, every one of us needs to take a moment and evaluate. And my prayer is that for each and every one of us that, that we wind up where Paul says, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? How do you recognize it? You recognize it because when you look at the picture of salvation, you go, that's me. Been through some stuff. Couldn't bail. Can't help sometimes but sharing it with people. Can't, can't help but finding myself participating in the things of God. I didn't conjure it up. I didn't generate it. It's there. It's just the result of being born again. If you evaluate and you say, that's not really me. I don't want you to leave here today until you know that you know that you know that you have been converted, changed, saved, born again. Because you don't want to miss this. You don't want to miss this. So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, how convicting as we look at this church. Three weeks, Paul was there, beaten up, scabbing over. You did something by your spirit. He had to leave. Couldn't even spend a lot of time giving them a great foundation. But you, by your spirit and your word, did something that they couldn't walk away from in the midst of incredible tribulation. They they found themselves having to share it, to walk in it. They, They found themselves deep inside just wanting to participate in the things that you were doing, even to the point where they're described as laboring out of their love for you to the place of exhaustion. And you've given us this picture of what believers really look like. And then you've also given the picture in Revelation 3 where you said to one church, 
You're not hot. You're not cold. You don't even realize it. Father, for those who are here today, reveal right where we are. Are we the picture of what it means to be a believer? Or are we the picture of what it means to be complacent? Maybe at that place where we're now blind and can't even see it, we pray that you open eyes. And here's what we pray. First of all, for those of us who say, I'm in the faith, I know it, I see it, but I need to adjust to the picture of the word. Lord, help us to make that step. We make that step today and we commit to just being who it is that you've called us to be. For those of us who are here today and we thought everything was great with God, but this picture of salvation has nothing to do with our lives. And you've illumined that for us today and we look to you. And we just say, Jesus, I can't, do this in my ability but I want what they had I want the ability when it hits the proverbial fan in my life there's that something deep inside of me that I say I can't walk away I I want that joy in the midst of very difficult times I want what they had and the Bible says that if you invite him in you ask him to give you that it's very simple Jesus forgive me of my sins Step in, I want that. I want to look like that. He promises to step in. And if that's you today and that's your prayer, then you can know today you're born again. And being born again will be evidenced in your life from this, from this point on. There's a change. I pray for each and every person here today Thank you, God, for this church. Thank you for the work that you're doing in each and every life. I pray your blessing, and I pray that truth is revealed continuously. Help us to walk in your spirit and in all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.